All right. Well, uh, yesterday we had some pretty nice weather. We had, uh, we, we had soccer right now. Elliot's in soccer as well as tennis. And we had a soccer game, and sun's out when we go, and we're thinking it's going to be fine. And I'm uh, helping to coach, you could say, which means I sit on the sideline and keep the time. That's really all I do. Make sure I tell the coach, the real coach, when, to, uh, when, the, game, when the half's going to be over. That's my job. So I don't do anything other than sit over there and freeze if the weather's cold. And uh, I was having a conversation with my wife on the way up today because we have a soccer game at 1, and uh, we got to leave right after church. It's up in Copley, and the weather's going to be like 45 degrees, 10-mile-an-hour winds, and I don't think I brought enough coat. But uh, we have blankets in the car, and I'm like, well, maybe I'll just take a blanket over there. And she's like, <laughs> she starts laughing. She's like, I don't. I think if you don't care about your manliness, you can do that. But uh, and I'm like, yeah, okay, you've already convinced me. I'll, I'll suck it up. I, I do care about that a little bit. So I'm going to be freezing today at uh, 1 o'clock from 1 to 3. But uh, I'm going to have to suck it up and deal with it. Poor planning. Thank you. The sad thing is I'm a planning engineer. That's my title. And I was poor planning right there. But uh, all right. Okay, I'm going to summarize the review, so don't t we're not going to read through the review, but just uh, real briefly, we're going somewhere today in chapters 43 and 44. It's almost a continuation of chapter 42. Um, Joseph, we know, he he's goes from being sold into Egypt by his brothers who hated him to being then thrown into prison. So he's been totally you know, treated poorly, had a, had a horrible time. After being falsely accused of rape, he's thrown into prison. But then God orchestrates events in Pharaoh's life and exalts him to the right hand of Pharaoh, all to save the world from famine, and especially his brothers, who then, Canaan, there's a famine in the land of Canaan, and last week we saw that the brothers make a trip to go get some food, and they appear before Joseph for the first time and prostrate themselves exactly as Joseph had dreamed and foretold 20 plus years ago. So... Chapters 42 to 44, honestly, this is, I, I call this Joseph's second interview with his brethren. He, he, this is the second time they're going to come for more food into the land of uh, Egypt. And uh, what I, I would like in chapters 42 to 44, it's really a picture of the proving process that God puts a sinner through to, through to bring them to a proper place of repentance and brokenness. And that's really what's going on here. Joseph is going to work them just like he does a sinner, just like Jesus does a sinner, to get them to that proper place of heart attitude for the, towards their sin and towards who he is. And that's what chapters 42 to 44 are. And if you would, I want, I, what I did, because I didn't want to take the time to read all the 43 and 44, because by the time we get done with it, I'm afraid you're going to forget it. So I just summarized it for us today. We're going to still go to the Bible. These are my words. I get that. We're going to go to the God's words when we do it. We just won't be able to read the whole thing. So if you would, follow along on your study sheet, and we're going to just read the summary of chapters 43 and 44. Okay, as the famine raged on in Canaan, Judah and his brothers petitioned and eventually convinced Jacob to allow them to take their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them to Egypt to buy some more food. Remember, that was the whole contention, right? Benjamin. He wanted to protect Benjamin, the only, one, the only son left of his uh, wife, Rachel, because he thought Joseph was dead. Joseph, upon seeing them, returned from... Did I skip something? No. Joseph, upon seeing them, returned for more food with his younger brother, bids his steward to take them to his own house and make ready for a feast. When Joseph finally joins them after finishing his work, 
I find that interesting. Joseph didn't immediately leave. He actually finished doing his job of, of making sure everybody had their food and then took his break at lunch. And uh, it says, once he finishes his work, he asks about his father's well-being and speaks with Benjamin for the first time in 20 plus years. This causes great emotion within Joseph's heart, so much so that he had to leave the room and wash his face before returning to the meal. The Bible says he wept. I don't know if we'll read that today, but it does. It says he wept. So Joseph, to the amazement of his brothers, seats them according to their age at the table and gives Benjamin five times more than the others. So they're, they're, they actually says they wonder. They're amazed that he knew, their, he knew how to sit them according to age. So he's you know, divining to them. And they're like, wow, this guy is like God. Uh, at the end of the feast, Joseph sends them back home with their sacks filled with food and once again returns all their money to them. However, this time he puts his silver cup into Benjamin's sack. He then sends his steward after them and accuses them of stealing it. The blank is accuses. Uh, the brothers vehemently deny the charge and open their sacks to prove the steward wrong. When the cup was found to be in Benjamin's sack, they rent their clothes and return to face Joseph. Judah, assuming the leadership role, throws himself at the mercy of the judge, in this case it's Joseph, and states, and this is a quote, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. He makes no defense, nor does he admit that Benjamin was guilty in this matter. In other words, he doesn't throw Benjamin under the bus, but he doesn't, he doesn't defend them themselves, even though he doesn't think they took it. But he just says, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. So then he, he says he asks and pleads for pity based on his father's old age and what would happen if Benjamin does not return to him, which is despair and even death. And that, he, there's like, I don't know how many verses, it's like 18 to 34 in chapter 44 there. That's a long time that Judah is, make, Judah is making this plea to Joseph, all based on his father and his brother, and it's all about somebody else. It wasn't about him. So much so does Judah mean these words that he's willing to be a slave forever to Joseph in Benjamin's place out of love for his father and brothers. So that's, that's where chapter 43 and 44 take us today. And we'll, we're going to look at our doctrinal application. We've been looking about how Joseph is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to add four to it. We're going to go you know, up to 75 ways so far that we're going to have seen that Joseph is a type or a picture of our Savior. And uh, your first one, number 72 there. Joseph's brethren continued to manifest a legalistic spirit. A legalistic spirit. And if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 43, I do want you to see this in verse 11. (coughs) It says, And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take the best of the fruits in the land in your vessels. Carry down the manna present a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. And look in verse 15. And the men took that present that Jacob told them to, and they took double money in their hand and Benjamin and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So what are they doing? They're going to take presents to Canaan. They're going to do something to gain favor with this governor of Egypt. And just imagine, he's the governor of Egypt. What does he need with their little piddly gifts? (laughs) He's the governor of Egypt. He's the one with the food. He doesn't need any of this stuff. And this isn't this exactly what religion does? It's, it's people, people who are just starting to be drawn to God. You know what they do? They redouble their efforts. They're going to try really, really hard to then live the life that they need to live. 
but uh, they, they just won't surrender yet. But uh, So they took double money, and that's exactly you know, kind of what, what we do. But yet all of our righteousnesses are what? Filthy rags to God. He's not interested in what we can do for him. In fact, he, he's only after one thing, and that is surrender. He says you know, that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That's what he's after, absolute, complete surrender. He wants us to give up. Uh, so number 73, Joseph's brethren are now made happy again, though, because they come into Egypt, they take this present, they present it to the steward. Remember, the steward's taking them to Joseph's house. So he's walking them to Joseph's house, and they're having this little conversation then with the steward because they're a little nervous because they're not sure what's going to happen when they find out, you know, they're going to be in trouble for having the money in the sacks. Are they going to be accused? Are they in big trouble? And they're, they're really worried. So they're having this whole conversation, and I do want to read a, a part of it. Look in... Uh, Verse 33 of chapter uh, 43. Uh, it says, and they sat down before... Oh, wait a minute. I got ahead of myself. Or, or I skipped something. Sorry about that. No, I didn't. Okay, verse 33. And they sat down before him. This is where he sets them according to order. And the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at the other. And he took and sent messes unto them from before him. And Benjamin's mess was five times so was five times so much more as uh, so much as any of theirs and they drank and were merry with him so they were made merry they were they were happy again they were like okay we're gonna we're gonna be okay we're not we're not gonna be in trouble and to the casual observer you know uh you might think that all all is well now uh is well now they're fine they're happy yet they're not in a right relationship yet with joseph are they they're they're in big trouble still they don't know it but their their guilt and sin hasn't been removed and yet they seem to think everything's going to be okay. They're at peace now. They're merry again. It says they drank and they're like, I mean, who can eat if you think you're about ready to be in big trouble? I mean, you don't feel like you're ready to eat. But they're, they've been made to feel okay again. And uh, isn't that what religion does? Religion flatters you. In fact, uh, in most religions, you, you go weekly to at least, you know, you take communion or the Eucharist. And it, and it makes you feel like, okay, now I can go and live it up throughout the week. And it flatters you. And it makes you feel like we're going to be okay again. You just got to get to Sunday or go to confession or whatever it is. Whatever your religious experience is, baptism, whatever, it makes you feel good again. makes you happy again if you're trying to use that religion to, to appease your conscience. And, uh, you know, I, I got a quote on my paper. I can't remember who said it, but religion is hanging around the cross, whereas Christianity is hanging on the cross. That's the difference. People like to hang around Christianity or hang around the cross, but they don't want to get on it. They don't want to, they don't want to deny themselves and take up their own cross. And uh, that's the difference between religion. So be careful with, uh, you know, what are you doing to appease your conscience? Hopefully it's, you're, you're, you're laying it all at the cross. <coughs> Number 74, <coughs> and this is relating to the same verse we just read, but Joseph is determined to bring his brethren out into the light. We already read verse 34 where it says he gives Benjamin five times more than the other brothers. Why would he do that? You know, you could make a case, oh, he's, he's doing what Jacob did. He's favoring Joseph who had a coat of many colors. But you know what he's doing? He's proving, he's testing his brothers here. He's going to see, are they going to envy and hate Benjamin like they did me? Are they going to be ticked off that they don't have as much food? I mean, they had plenty to eat. There's no way Benjamin ate five times more than them. But he just was making a point of, I'm going to give them more, and I want to see how they handle this. I want to see if they're going to be a little jealous, a little envious, a little, 
a little ticked off that they didn't get as much as Benjamin. So just a, a stiff test um, <clears throat> that, quite frankly, they, they passed. And I, I do want to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 44 as well. Because there's another test he puts them through. Look in verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn, uh, and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So, you know, he's wanting to see what are they going to do with this silver cup when it's discovered. He sends a steward after him which we already talked about, and they, they reveal that it's in Benjamin's sack. Are they going to, I mean, they could have easily said, well, not in my sack. It's in Benjamin's sack. We'll let him deal with it. But that is not, that is not what the Bible says happens here. You have Judah coming to his defense, and, and we're going to get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he's trying to prove them here. He wants to see their heart towards his brother Benjamin and towards their father. Are, have they, are they changed men? Are they willing are they willing to not just be about themselves? Are they willing to realize that they are sinful, that they are wicked, and that they, quite frankly, need a savior? They need someone to help them. Um, so that's what he's doing there, and he's wanting to bring that sin into the light. And sin, you know what? When it's brought into the light, allows us to see God for who he is. That's what it comes down to. And see it as God sees sin. We tend, we tend to sometimes like to, you know, makes sin a little easier. No, it's just a white lie. We've talked about that. We call them white lies. There's no such thing. But we like to you know, make, ourselves feel, make ourselves feel better than, than what we should. In fact, Peter, what's he say in, in Luke 5, 8? He says, you know, depart from me. I, I am a sinful man. You know? And uh, Job, I do want you to turn to Job. Job chapter 40. Job, once he sees God for who he is. And, you know, Job, honestly, was a godly man, but yet godly only in the sense of other men on earth. Quite frankly, he was as wicked as the rest of us. And what's he say whenever he comes face to face with God and God's talking with him? And look in Job 40 and verse 3. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. And turn over to chapter 42. <clears throat> Continuing, he says in verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Talking to the Lord here. But now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I pour myself and repent in dust and ashes. And that is exactly the hard attitude that Joseph's trying to get his brothers to, to be revealed in them. So they can see their own selves and abhor themselves. <clears throat> so, um, number 75, last, uh, last point here on the doctrinal part of this. Joseph's brethren at last take their true place before God. And look back in Genesis 44, if you will, and look in verse 4. So the steward goes after them, and it says, And when they were gone out of the city, and not yet far off, this is in verse 4, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? And then drop down to verse 16. So he brings them back. They, get, they bring them back into the presence of Joseph. And check out what Judah says here. This is such a key verse for today. And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? 
God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. He says, we're all your servants. We'll do whatever you say. We're guilty. And yet, they really weren't guilty on this matter. It's like he's talking about, he knows their sin has been found out from the past, right? That's what's going on here. They realize, oh boy, they have offended God. They've blown it. And notice, it says, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. It was God. They were, they were, they were worried about how they were perceived with God now. Um, so that's the whole point is, you have a, the steward here is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God who brings you into the presence of Christ. The steward goes after them and drags them back to Joseph to face them. And had, they had to deal with Joseph face to face about their sin. And that's what's going on here in, uh, in Genesis 44. In fact, if you would, open your, or turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 20. You know, when God's drawing a sinner to himself, you know, it's exactly what happens. You start to feel guilty, and yet you haven't been saved yet. You, you are, you're under this conviction of sin. And I still remember when I was a student at Ohio State, and I'm, I'm starting to, uh, I haven't yet started to date Melanie, but I'm telling you what, I knew God was working in my life. And I did not know the gospel yet. I did not know it. And I, I grew up in church. When I say I didn't know the gospel, I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't understand what that meant, and that, that when he cried, it is finished, that it was finished. I thought it was all about my baptism and communion and going to church and being good. And I, I remember constantly God working in my life to where I, I, uh, I would go play basketball at one of their facilities down at Ohio State. I did it all the time, like too much basketball, so much so that I think my back hurts to this day from it. But uh, I'm telling you, I played all the time, but it got pretty heated at times, you know, and I, I, it was pretty contentious. And I was a willing participant in that, you know, and almost fighting over games and, and, and having words, sometimes profane words coming out of my mouth. And yet, God drawing me, I remember walking back to my, my apartment from where I was, I'm crossing a busy street and thinking, if I get hit right now, I'm, I'm dropping straight into hell. And I, I knew that I was wrong in how I acted. And I remember as a lost man getting on my knees beside my bed and asking God to forgive me for what I just did. But I didn't understand the gospel. But he's drawing me to, my, to himself. And I feel like that's what's going on here with this steward. He's drawing him back to, to Joseph. So, uh, and I, I guess to tell the rest of my testimony, I, ends up, I end up meeting Melanie and I go to a Baptist church, First Baptist of, of New Philly, and I'm like, start hearing the gospel. And then, that's when it, the lights kick on for me. And I, I can maybe tell a little bit more of my, my story a little bit later, but I'm telling you what, God was drawing me at that time. And it's similar to what's going on here with how the steward goes and accuses those brothers and gets them to that place where they're before Joseph admitting their guilt. So... Um, let's see, where am I? They make no attempt to clear themselves. They just admit guilt. And uh, really what, <coughs> this is a very grave and somber occasion. And so is the time of genuine salvation. I think sometimes we make salvation this whole, rah, rah, someone got saved. And while that's true, I'm not trying to limit, or limit that or whatever, but I, I think salvation is a very grave and somber time because you realize it's your sin that put the Savior on the cross. And when you come to that understanding, it's, it's not a rah-rah time of happiness. It's honestly a time of brokenness for you. 
The Bible says the angels in heaven rejoice over that when one sinner repents. But I'm not sure it's a great time of celebration down here until afterwards when your joy obviously is, is full. Obviously that happens and there's a time of relief. But when you realize it was your sin that put him on the cross, I have a feeling it's a very, it's, it's a very somber thing. It's a very grave situation because it's brokenness and humbleness. And uh, it's kind of like, uh, I would liken it to you're at a war. Have you ever seen, you know, God's after surrender, right? And if you're in a war, think of, I, I think of the Civil War and Appomattox, I believe, isn't that, do I have my time right? Appomattox is where surrender took place, right? The other side isn't marching in and they're not, they're not singing songs. They're not cheering. They realize they lost. And we were all at war with God, all of us. And we hated God. We hated Him. And we didn't want any part of Him until we realized we were wicked and we were sinful and that He died on that cross for us. And that's why I say it's a time of surrender. It's a time of realization of what have I done? It's what Job, we just read it in Job, I am vile, I abhor myself. And that's why I told you to turn to Ezekiel 20. It's been a while now, but look in verse 42. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel under the country for, for the, uh, into the country for, for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled. And ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. And that's what we're trying to get a sinner to realize. They need to loathe themselves. Our problem in this culture is not we don't have enough self-esteem. It's the opposite. We think too much of ourselves. And really a Christian gets to the point where they realize we don't think anything of ourselves. We think all of him. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we need to do, right? So, all right. Moving on to the practical application of, the, of today. And number one, so if you would, make your way back to Genesis chapter 43 and here's your point number one it comes from uh, verses one and two again it says the famine was sore in the land and it says and your number one is when there is a famine in the land you must go to where there is food or you and your family will die and how, how do you avoid this famine of hearing the words of the lord what's what's the best way to avoid it well number one i'd say why don't you first of all not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, as it says in Hebrews. You know, Sundays aren't optional, is what I would say. Never optional. They're, they're, the, they're the day of the week that we're supposed to assemble together and hear the word of the Lord proclaimed, right? That's what Paul did. That's what we see all Christians doing in the Bible. And so Sundays don't, aren't optional days. So if you, you want to avoid the famine, number one, do that. Number two, turn to Exodus. We're, we're in Genesis. Turn to Exodus 16. When the nation of Israel was led out of Egypt after Joseph died and there arose a king who knew not Joseph, the Bible says. They were treated poorly. They were slaves. Moses comes and leads them out of Egypt. And then how are they going to eat? Well, God provides what? Manna from heaven. Look what he says about this manna from heaven in Exodus chapter 16. Look in verse 21. And they gathered it, the manna, every morning, every man according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot, it melted. I find that interesting. Every morning they were to get their food. Every morning. It wasn't something they did later on in the day once they, you know, you get up, you start working, you get ready for work, you go to work, and then maybe if you have time, you'll, you'll read your Bible in the evening. Well, I don't think that's the pattern ever set out in Scripture. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 6, it says, Seek ye first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In fact, the first commandment is have no other gods before me. Um, Mark 1.35, Jesus said he, he rose up a great while before day and then went to a solitary place. And uh, I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes, if you would. The point is, we need to do this first thing, right? It's what we should do first to start our day. Spend time with the Lord. Jesus said, Now ye are clean through the words which I have spoken unto you. Um, I've got to get to Ecclesiastes. It's hard to talk and turn at the same time. Okay, Ecclesiastes 12.1. And I, I want to read this you know, mainly for the young people in here. And if there were high schoolers, I'd say it to them too. But look what it says in verse 1. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. There's coming a day when getting old is going to be rough. And he says, remember your Creator in the days of thy youth. And I guess I've, you know, I've been a kid before and I have kids and I know the excuses they try to give with respect to not getting up and getting in the Word of God. They think that their schedule's different. They're in school now. It's different. I'll, I'll read my Bible later, but when I get a job like you, Dad, then I'll read my Bible in the morning. And I'm telling you, uh-uh. You need to remember Him in the days of your youth. And it's still seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not like the kids back in Exodus. You guys can gather your manna in the evening. All the adults will go out and get it in the morning. No, no, no. It was you go get what you need to eat in the morning. And after that, the sun waxed hot and it was gone. And that's why I say, you know what? We do need to encourage our kids or make our kids or whatever you want to do. Teach them the diligent discipline of being in that book daily and in the morning before they start their day. They need to trust God first. They don't want to, you know, because what you're saying when you don't get in this book in the beginning is, God, I don't need you now. I'll check you out later if I have time and if I have a problem. And it's like, no, you need him. You need him more than you ever know. And uh, I remember a pastor saying, if you, you would never cross the doorstep uh, of your door to go out and do something without talking to God or hearing from God if you knew and could see the principalities and powers that were out there after you. You wouldn't do it. You remember, it's the, I think we read this, was it you and I, uh, we were talking with the Kramers, I think, last night about Elisha and, uh, and how that, uh, Elisha was showing the one guy they were worried about you know, the enemy that was going to come take them over and Elisha's like, open their eyes. And he showed them all the, all the horses and the chariots of, of the God's army was there and he was going to protect them. But I mean, sometimes we need to understand we need to pray and we need to get ready for the, the, the spiritual warfare that we're entering every day. And that's why he says, put on the whole armor of God daily. And it starts with the word of God. So you want to avoid the famine? That's how you do it right there. And then number two, I've kind of emphasized the point already, but look in Genesis 43 and verse 8. Judah here is trying to convince his dad, Jacob, to send Benjamin with him. And he says in verse 8, And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, talking about Benjamin, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. This is a matter of life and death, according to Judah. And... Uh, you know, we were spiritually starving to death before God through Jesus Christ what brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In fact, uh, we have time to go there. Yeah, let's go there. Second Kings. Second Kings chapter six. Let 
this is an incredible story in in your Bibles about a famine that was happening in Samaria. The, the northern ten tribes were their capital was in Samaria. They were being besieged, and there was a huge famine. They were they were they were they were walled in, and the armies of Syria were outside, and no food could get in and out. And they were trying to starve them out. They were trying to starve them out. Look in verse twenty four. Uh, of chapter 6, 2 Kings 6, 24. And it came to pass after this that Benhadad, king of Syria, gathered all the host and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for four score pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. They were buying bird poop to eat. That's how, that's how precious food was. I'm telling you, that's serious stuff. I mean... Anyways, moving on, I want you to understand how serious the famine was. Okay, you go into chapter 7 and look in verse 3. And there were four lepers, or there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? So these, these lepers weren't allowed in the city, but the Syrians didn't care about them. They were just right out the doors and, and they were, they were kind of sitting there and they're saying, why, why are we sitting here till we die? It says, if we say we will enter into the city when the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us fall under the host of the Syrians. And if they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight to go under the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, lo. The king of Israel hath hired us, or hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. You see, the Lord delivered them at this time. He was watching over them and he, he took the whole army and they left all of their supplies. And look in verse uh, 8. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one part or one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Can you imagine? They're finding all this food and these four leprous men are starving and they're eating and they're doing this and then they're like, well, let's take this and they're going to go bury it and hide it for themselves. Just like we would do. I'm sure we'd be like amazed. What, what has just happened to us? We just hit the lottery. Verse nine. Then they said one to another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon uh, us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. And you know what? They've, they came to their senses and realized we need to share this good news. And you know, we as Christians, we're starving. We were starving. And now God has given us abundant food. And we're like those leprous men. We were the sinful leprous men who found food and you know what? If we're not taking it and trying to pass it out to others, we do not well, right? We do not well. We need to go tell the king's household because he died for everybody, did he not? We could all be member. Everybody could be a member of the king's household. And so that's, that's the point. It's a matter of life or death. And we have life-giving food that we need to pass out to others. So next point, number three. Still working on the transition concept. Uh, Number three, uh, Judah offered himself as surety, which means payment or exchange, to guarantee Benjamin's security and safety. I love this. We're going to hang here for just a bit, but look in chapter 43 and verse 9. 
Am I missing something? Did I do something wrong? Okay. Chapter, 40, so chapter 43, verse 9, he says, I will be surety for him. If you didn't know how to spell it, there it is. <laughs> I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Ah, that's, that's amazing right there, guys. G just so you understand, Jesus is our surety. In fact, if you don't, if you don't believe me, let's, let's hold your place right here. Let's go to Hebrews 7 real quick. See, some of you thought you learned a new word. No, you just proved you didn't read Hebrews 7 lately. Look in Hebrews 7. This is cool. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. He's our surety. He's our payment, our exchange. He, he's our surety. He's our, uh, he's our payment. Um, in Revelation 5.5, 5, we don't need to turn there, but I think it's interesting that Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's Judah here that is our surety. And uh, I do want you to turn to Genesis 44. I want you to see one other thing. This is right at the end of what we're talking about today, but he's, he, he's in this long defense at the end where he's, he's admitted guilt and he's trying to convince Joseph to let him off uh, and to let him stay. And he says, look in verse 33, Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant, speaking of himself, abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. You see, he wanted to bear the blame forever. He wanted to be instead of Benjamin. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus hung on that cross instead of you. Do you realize it should have been you on that cross, right? Our sin deserved to be, we should have been the ones hanging there. He actually was unjustly hung on the cross. But it was the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Um, look in, uh, well, I defined for you, what, we're, what I want to define for you is imputation. This is the doctrine of imputation. Our sins attributed to Christ while his perfect righteousness is attributed to us. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians five. Verse 19 says, "To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In fact, one of my favorite hymns of all time is Before the Throne of God. You guys know what I'm saying when I, when I've, when I say that song? Well, I'm going to read you a couple verses because to me, it's, it's probably the best hymn that deals with the imputation of Christ. The fact that He's imputed His righteousness to us and He's imputed our sin to Him. Um, check out these verses. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Wow. 
third verse. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I Am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. The reason we're eternally secure in Him is because we have His righteousness. We have no righteousness on our own. He's made us righteous and given us His righteousness and taken upon Him all of our sin. That's the imputation of, 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 uh, of Christ. He's imputed our sins to Himself. That's what the doctrine of imputation is. This has been called, this is on your study sheet, this has been called the great exchange. I think that was by Martin Luther. He called this the, the great exchange, which is our sins for Christ's righteousness. And in Psalm 32 too, you don't need to turn there, but it says, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. In fact, Job asked, how can a man be justified with God? How can that even happen? And you realize there is only one way that that could happen. I want to show you that right now. Look in Proverbs chapter 17. I don't know if I've gone here yet since we've been teaching this, but I wanted to hang here for just a bit. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3 that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus was God. And I want to prove to you that Jesus had to be God or quite frankly, we couldn't have had our sins imputed to him and his, his righteousness imputed to us. This whole doctrine of imputation rises and falls on the fact of, was Jesus God? And if Jesus was God, then he could do it. Look in Proverbs 17 and verse 15. It says, He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just even they both are abomination to the Lord. So, in other words, if it's wrong to justify a wicked man and to say, hey, a wicked man, which is all of us, by the way, we're wicked. It's wrong to justify us. It's abominable to God. Look what else is abominable to him. It says, even, uh, and he that condemneth the just. So if you condemn a just man, also abominable to God. Okay? Well, God is not an abomination to himself, and yet he's found a way for him to remain just and the justifier. And the only way that could happen was Jesus had to be God himself, or God would be an abomination. God cannot, it would be wrong to punish some, some created being or some sub-God, Jesus Christ, in our place. That's why the Jehovah Witnesses are all wrong on this. They can't be. Proverbs 17 proves that it's an abomination. We know that. I should never punish Cameron for something Elliot did. Would that make any sense? That's insane. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing. I should not reward Cameron for something that Elliot did well. And we, what, what you have here with Proverbs 17, 15 is God would contradict himself, which we know he can't, unless God could condemn himself in our place. We could all, you know, God himself could be the judge, take off his robe, and hang on that cross in our place and not be an abomination. It's not wrong to condemn yourself for someone else. And that's why God had to be the one that died on that cross. It had to be God taking your sin. Because other than that, we all know that to be abominable. We know that in our own, we, we would never run our homes like that. We would never condemn one of our kids for something some, one of our other kids did or shouldn't do that. So anyways, that's my defense of without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh and he took our payment 
And he became our uh, righteousness. And he gave us his righteousness. All right, number four. Genesis four, back to Genesis 43. We're going to have to hustle through some of these. This is in verse 11 where it says, And Israel told them to take gifts uh, and a little bit of spice and all that stuff down to Joseph. And you know what? Where did Jacob learn that, that concept of gift giving? To, you know, he had already tried that and it worked with his brother Esau. Remember, he had ticked off Esau, stole his birthright, left, went and hung out with Laban, his uncle, for a while, gets a couple wives, comes back home, and Esau, he meets in the way, and he's a little nervous. So what's he do? He sends a bunch of presents up to him and says, hey, this is yours, I'm going to... And you know what? He bought a little goodwill. And so he's learning that by experience. And sometimes we can obviously... Wisdom can be gained by experience, right? Um, you know, experience is what tells you to watch your step, but, you know, it also is what you get when you don't watch your step. <laughs> you know, you end up tripping and falling, and sometimes we gain experience that way. But you can get experience, uh, wisdom by experience. You can also get it directly from his word. But, uh, you know, giving gifts can be a great way of buying a little goodwill from someone I, I've, I learned that myself when I had a bit of a cranky boss for a while uh, you know what take them some gifts buy a little goodwill for yourself there's nothing wrong with that the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive there's some wisdom in doing that a gift in secret pacifieth anger um, so you know use a little wisdom there so it's not a not a bad concept to, to give gifts and you know use it to your advantage if need be for the glory of God mind you is, is the reason to do that. Okay, uh, number five. Jacob came to the same conclusion as Job and Esther. He finally placed it all into God's hands. Look in verse 14 of, of chapter 43. He finally relents and lets, lets them take Benjamin, knowing they're going to die if they don't. And it says in verse 14, and God Almighty, this is Jacob speaking, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. The other brother being Simeon, who's stuck in jail for a long time, mind you. And if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Isn't that exactly similar to what Esther did when she said, if I perish, I perish when I go before King Ahasuerus. And then Job, he said, you know what? Naked came I out of my womb, out of the womb. Naked shall I return, but blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, you've got to get to the point where you put it all into God's hands, which is honestly the best place, the best place to be. And I, I find it interesting. Jacob gets to this point finally. And yet God has something special in store for him and he doesn't even know it. Isn't that like God? He can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think because not only is he going to get Simeon back and Benjamin's going to be fine, he's going to get Joseph back. I mean, what an amazing thing that God has in store for Jacob and he just wanted him to trust him. And, uh, and that's about ready to happen for Jacob. But he had to get to the point where he's like, if I be bereaved of them all, I be bereaved of them all. They're not mine. And your kids are not your own, are they? They're a heritage of the Lord. And... Uh, but God is a very gracious God, and he does, he does the unthinkable. And he's about ready to do that in his life. Um, then you have the number six. Uh, you have the point in the story where they get to, and this is what I was explaining earlier, where the steward, uh, they, they go before Joseph, and the steward takes them on to Joseph's house for the meal. And this is where they're defending themselves. We don't have time to read that section, but they're basically saying, we brought our money back, we brought this, we didn't do anything wrong, we're fine. And that's where the steward then, then says something, uh, look in verse 23, and he said, peace be to you, fear not, your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks, I had your money. And he brought Simeon out unto them. So he gets Simeon out of jail, joins the brothers, and they're going to all go sit for a meal. And uh, number six is integrity and uprightness do preserve us. 
David prayed, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. And you know what the brothers were doing here? They were just being honest and upright here. They were, they were admitting everything. They were just wanting to lay it all on the table. And you know what? Generally speaking, it's a good idea to be that way, right? It'll preserve you if you do the right thing. You know, what do you do when you get, over, or when you get undercharged at a, at a restaurant? Do you, do you honestly go up to them and make sure they know that hey, you missed something here? Uh, funny story. Uh, I was uh, going out to eat with some friends at work a while back, and uh, oh, if Jason Bronick were here, he'd appreciate telling the story probably better than me because we're sitting at, I think it's at Dutch Valley, and we all ate, and I, I had got, I believe, I got water, and my friend Tim had gotten a Pepsi or whatever, and uh, they're bringing the bills, and they put the Pepsi on mine, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's not mine, so I'm going to have to tell her, and she, one of the waitress comes, she's, uh, I, I say, that's not mine, can you take that off my bill, and, and she's like, she looks at me funny, and I'm like, oh yeah, that, I had water, I had water, but, but he had Pepsi, <laughs> <laughs> so to this day, Tim is always, you know, harassing me at work, saying, you know, yeah, just make sure everybody pays for their Pepsi, Scott. You know, that's, that's <laughs> my point is, make sure you're working on your own. Don't, don't necessarily make everybody else have to have integrity, uprightness. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to this day, I get, uh, I get harassed at work about that. But uh, she was looking into my soul. I'm telling you, that waitress was looking. She knew something was amiss. And I'm like, it's not me. It's him. But uh, anyway, but they do. They preserve us, do they not? Integrity and uprightness. Think of this, we're, we're saved from so many problems and health issues by our integrity and uprightness. Think, we, if we avoid smoking, we avoid you know, a large chance of, of the various types of cancers. If we avoid drinking alcohol, we, we avoid all kinds of uh, liver disease and quite frankly, all kinds of trouble that comes with that. Uh, we avoid drugs, you avoid the whole concept of, you know, of, of, of mental illness. You gotta see the, the, the amount of people who do drugs and have mental illnesses. I do think they're very closely associated, if not directly linked, and, uh, or quite frankly, overdose situations that can kill you with drug situations. Uh, promis promiscuity with other men and women and, and, and not being monogamous in a relationship. You avoid all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. Um, you have uh, you know, all kinds of, if you stay out of the barroom scene and the whole party scene, you avoid all kinds of fights and broken bones and hangovers, and then, than to go along with just broken relationships and broken hearts. When you, when you treat your spouse like you should and your children like you should, there's, there's less broken hearts over that whole thing. We, are, we avoid so much by integrity and uprightness. It does preserve us. So what a blessing that is when we know that if we obey the scriptures, God's going to use that in our lives in a great way. Number six, the steward, and I think I read the verse already. It's the verse I just read. But the steward comforts them with good news, which brings peace, hope, and life. And he even brought Simeon out to them. You know, what good news that must have been to them, right? They were charged with a crime in their mind. They're going to be charged, and all of a sudden they realize, oh, wow, we're going we're to be at peace, and we're going to have a nice meal. This is great, great news. But I want to make sure you understand, knowledge of the gospel is not enough, Right? A lot of people know the gospel. They just won't surrender. The devils know the gospel. They believe and tremble. They're even one step on a lot of lost people. They tremble. But they will not repent. They will not uh, you know, turn over their will. They will not surrender. And so knowledge of the gospel doesn't save you. What do you got to do? You have to receive Christ. You have to receive him 
through repentance and faith alone in what he did on that cross. So that's, that's where they're at. That steward, they're not there yet, but they understand it now. And they do understand their sin, as we read in verse 16. Uh, but we're not, I guess, we're jumping ahead in the story. So, moving on. Number eight, Joseph continues pro the proving process of his ten brothers by giving Benjamin five times more food. And he, but he wanted to see if they would hate and envy Benjamin like they did him years ago. And Psalm 66.10 says, For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Proverbs 17.3 says, The finding pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. And uh, faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And that's why he's proven them. He spoke, with, he spoke roughly with them last week, remember? We talked about Joseph speaking roughly with them. And then he bound Simeon, put him in, put him in prison. He's, he's treating them kind of harshly. He wants to get them to the place of understanding how serious their sin was. But he's got to get them to that place of brokenness. And he's still proving them and testing them and testing them here. You know, and, and the facts are, what do you get when you squeeze an orange? No. You get whatever's on the inside. If someone else stuck something else in there, you're going to get what's on the inside. And that's what, when you're squeezed, what comes out? It's the real you. It's whatever you put on the inside. And it starts with that whole concept of number one that we talked about in the morning and putting God's word in and talking to God and having that time where you're alone with him. So get, get to where when you're squeezed, when you go through a time, what, what comes out of you is God and God's word. That's what needs to come out. Because you know what? The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you often know what's in your heart by what comes out of your mouth when you're squeezed. So, okay, number nine. Joseph's final test was placing his silver cup into Benjamin's sack and then accusing them of theft. Look in uh, Genesis 44. I wanted to read verse 10. Actually, let's look in verse 9. With whomsoever of thy servants it be found. This is the steward speaking. No, this is actually the brothers. I'm sorry. The brothers say, With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. He said, hey, if it's here, we're all going to be your servants. And check out what the what the steward corrects him. He says, and he said, now also let it be according unto your words, he with whom it is found shall be my servant and ye shall be blameless. He's saying, no, 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 no. Only one of you. Whoever's done the wrong is going to pay for their sin, which is exactly what the Bible says, right? The Bible says in Jeremiah 31, 30, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And in Deuteronomy 24, 16, every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And, uh, you know, we're not going to be judged. And you're not going to be judged and sent to hell because of Adam's sin. That's not why you're going to hell. You're going to hell for your own sin. It's your sin that hung Jesus on the cross. We tend to, you know, poorly present the gospel sometimes because we're, we're making it all about what Adam did. Well, you know, he might have got the whole ball rolling, but the facts are, it's our own sin that we're going to go to hell for. We deserve hell because of our sin. Um, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis I want to share here. Sin is man saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. And you know what? Hell is God finally saying to man, you may have your wish. That's exactly what it is, isn't it? Sin is us saying, we don't want you, God. And God finally saying, all right. Because that's the only option, right? If you don't want God, you're not going to like heaven. 
You know, that's the issue. Heaven's all about God, and if you don't want him now, you're going to hate heaven. Hell is your only place that you're going to be able to, to be, and uh, the only just place to put you and or me. That's why it's, uh, it's important to understand what sin is and how, how, how it's personal. It's our sin, not someone else's sin. Make sure they understand that. Number 10, Judah led the way in interceding for his brethren. I find that interesting. Judah takes this elder statesman, and he's not the oldest brother. Simeon's in jail, Reuben's there, but Judah's next in line. He's the third, I believe, and, but Judah's the, Judah's the guy. He's going to come through, and he's the speaker for his brethren. He intercedes, and I think that fits perfectly with our lion of the tribe of Judah. What's it say about our, our lion of the tribe of Judah? It says in Hebrews 7.25 that he ever liveth to maketh intercession for us. And in 1 John 2, it talks about if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our advocate. He's our defense lawyer. So not only was our judge, how would you like to be in a courtroom where your judge is also your defense lawyer? Well, you're in pretty good shape. I think you're going to be just fine. And that's, what we, that's, our, that's our position with Christ. Christ is our advocate. and He's also our judge, the Bible says. What a perfect situation for Christians. Everybody else is in a big, bad situation. They have no advocate other than themselves. And that's why they're in trouble. And he's going to say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. And that's next week's lesson. Where Je Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brethren. And they're going to know him. And that's what we get to do next week. Um, we've got a couple more points though. Number 11. Judah and his brethren offer no defense and surrender themselves as prisoners to Joseph. And is this not the proper position for every sinner before God? That is what they're supposed to be. Absolute surrender. That we're guilty. We are wrong. And that's, that's what, that's, well, let's go to Psalm 51. I want you to see this. In, in David, King David's life, he did the exact same thing. Once he was caught or found out, his sin was brought out into the light by, by the prophet Nathan. And look in verse 1 of Psalm 51. This is David speaking here. And he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. I think it's interesting in verse 4, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. You know, in light of who God is, that's a true statement. But the facts are, he sinned against more than just God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel by putting them in this situation. And uh, you know what, Bo? All of that is nothing compared to God. Your sin problem is with God. And you need to understand that. And look what God desires. Look in verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, Lord. He doesn't desire sacrifice. Baptism, communion, keeping the Ten Commandments. He doesn't want your sacrifices. You're not going to be able to redouble your efforts. He says, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. You know, have you ever wronged someone and had to apologize? Your spouse, perhaps? You know, try to avoid these words. I'm sorry, but... And then you list your reasons why you're sorry, but... Why you had your justifiable reasons for treating them or saying what you did. That is not an apology. 
You know what a, a, a humble apology is, is, is what Psalm 51 just explained. It. Here's what it should look like. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Uh, I have no defense. It was my pride and my selfishness that caused me to say what I said or do what I did. That's, that's apology. Avoid the word but. Stop justifying yourself or you haven't made it right with your spouse or whoever it is you've wronged. You can't have the but in there or you're really not sorry. You're a politician. That's what they do. We're Christians. And we want to apologize and be genuine, right? And rest assured, we could all learn from that, including me. My wife's up here saying, you're a hypocrite, Scott. And I know that. But I'm going to do better. <laughs> I'm going to redouble my efforts. No, but the, the facts are we all have made those mistakes, have we not? And we all need to be a little more humble when we're realizing and we are you know, going to make it right with our spouse or whoever it is. So it's just our reasonable service, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, last point, number 12. Judah, by his eloquent and genuine plea for mercy, this is in verses 18 to 34. We won't read that in chapter 44, but he goes on and on, and it's awesome. But Judah, by his eloquent and genuine plea for mercy, showed his true love and care for his father Jacob and younger brother Benjamin. He had been humbled and broken over his past sins. And we're in Psalm 51. If you would turn to Psalm 34 and we'll finish there. See, now God can use Judah and the brothers if their hard attitude is right. You see, Satan uses and exalts the prideful. But God uses and exalts the humble and the broken. Look in Psalm 34 and verse 18 and we'll finish. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And that's what chapters 42 to 44 were all about. Getting those brothers to that point of contrition and brokenness over their sin so that they could then know Joseph again and be made right with them. And we're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing our sin to us, Lord, and drawing.